really enjoy doing these little intros. A brief summary, a little teaser of the subject to come. So here I sit, wondering how in the ever-loving name of Freud's ghost, I'm going to tease today's show, even though it's one of my absolute favorites so far. Today we've got best-selling author Jason Parjan. Is he a self-help author? No, not in the least. He writes gory sci-fi and horror. And in fact, with some incredibly foul language. Not on this episode, don't worry. So what's he doing here on this decidedly non-gory, non-explicit mental health podcast talking about the meaning of Christmas? What? Well, it will all make sense if you stick around. We promise. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Baggage Check is not a show about luggage or travel. Incidentally, it's also not a show about the sociocultural history of the mullet. Okay, on to today's show. Years ago, in the throes of the chaos of the holiday season, I read a piece that shifted how I think about celebrations during that time. It was funny. It was dark. At points, it touched on despair and death and debauchery. But ultimately, it touched on hope and light and connection. I thought it was really beautiful. I hadn't known at the time who the author of it was. Well, it didn't help that he was writing under a pseudonym. But I found myself returning to that piece year after year, as a little reminder for me to keep the bigger picture in mind. I always meant to contact the author and say how much it affected me. But, you know, procrastination, fear of awkwardness. Well, imagine my surprise when I dug up the piece this latest time and noticed the name of the author since the pseudonym had been dropped. And the author was one I recognized and had in my head as someone who did a way different type of writing. As in the kind of writing that someone like me did not naturally gravitate to because it involves sci-fi. Astrophysics is not my forte, although I do find it fascinating. And his writing also involved horror. I love things like The Twilight Zone, but my threshold for violence pretty much ends with someone slapping their own knee because somebody said something funny. But seeing his name, I thought this just got gloriously weirder. I wonder if this guy would be willing to talk about how it all fits together. And somehow, I don't know, maybe he'll give us the meaning of life itself. I reached out to Jason and he said, all right, so here we are. And we got to have a discussion about everything from existential crises to holiday parties to despair to fame to technology to COVID to loneliness to gratitude to the Black Plague to TikTok to conspiracy theories. Well, it was an even greater conversation than I hoped for, and I'm still thinking about it. And by the way, his brand new book, which he warned you about, it is not for the kids that might be listening in the car, is If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. So here we go. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here at Baggage Check, Jason. It's good to be here. Thank you. So I would love to hear about your beginnings as a writer because from what i understand your path really was one of absolute toil right you were working full-time in a non-related field and you started writing on the side and gradually your writing got some attention is that right yeah and i don't want to de-emphasize how fortunate 
I was because I got started writing at almost the dawn of the internet, the late 90s. So this was in the blogging scene before they were called blogs. This was back when the internet was just a bunch of people. It was almost an entirely text-based platform because any photo would take eight minutes to load even. <laughs> and there was no video. It was not a multimedia. So back then, and I was a somebody who... I was in my early 20s. I had given up on my career. I was just taking whatever you know day jobs I could get through a temp agency working in offices. But I was writing on the side as a hobbyist. I had no background in publishing or any connections to publishing or anything like that. But back in those days, when long-form articles were what people came to the internet to read, you could kind of make a name doing that. And I think, I don't know if I had come along 20 years later, if I would have still had the same career, because some of it, you know, I was very much a product of that era. Mm -hmm. um, but man, I, I took to it. And then, yeah, for those who are just hearing about me for the first time, that became a day job a long time later, a decade later. In 2007, I would get hired at crack.com. And then over the next 13 years, that site would become a fairly huge deal. At one point, we had like 25 million visitors a month across our mm -hmm. various uh, platforms. And then as part of that writing on the side, the blogging, I wrote a novel that I gave away online for free for years called John Dies at the End. And then mm -hmm. that got turned into a movie against all odds. And then that book series became <laughs> a bestseller. But I... That's all of that happened while I was working at, I was working two jobs, working at an insurance company and a law office, both of them doing just billing and data entry. And as a hobby on the side, I just wrote and managed to get, uh, managed to get attention. But I, I don't know if I can still do that now when it, you know, the world yeah. was dominated by video and, and TikTok. Um, I don't know that yeah. I'm a compelling enough personality on camera or, or, or am, am pretty enough to do it. But, uh, so no, I, I appreciate, I got, I was very privileged, not that I had industry connections, but that I was born at the right time and I started at the right time. Yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, I think it's always wonderful when people recognize the role that some luck played in terms of being in the right place at the right time, but certainly, certainly your career since has really shown just how much you had to offer and how well that would resonate with audiences and listeners you should know that even though he's saying that he's not good on camera his TikTok does pretty well actually i don't even know do i say your your TikTok? what's the proper terminology for one's TikTok presence your TikTok persona your your TikTok output whatever it is but certainly you are making a huge splash there too so i think you obviously have a knack for showing up where people are and knowing how to use the platform. I mean, like giving away your novel for free, lots of people might try that, but yours obviously resonated so much that it was able to turn into something that reached a lot of people. And speaking of that, actually, so you used to write under a pseudonym, is that right? Yeah, in the early internet days, everybody had like hacker names they wrote under so I wrote under a pseudonym because I had no interest in people knowing who I was or connecting mm -hmm. my work with me and my face and my personality. I, I would, if it was up to me, I would still, like, I would just write under a variety of pseudonyms because it's like, no, really? I want the work to be its own thing. I yeah. do not want a thing where people are like buying the book because it's like a personality cult where it's like, oh, he's the right. cool dude from YouTube or whatever. I'll, it's like, no, yeah. the book is the book. 
it shouldn't matter who wrote it. Now, that was obviously very, you know, completely naive on my part. But remember, I got started before social media existed and before mm-hmm. the idea of social media being a desirable thing that people would want existed. Because yeah. when I started on the Internet in the late 90s, you didn't tell anybody. You didn't tell them your name. You didn't tell them where you were from. And everybody, they were posting behind a pseudonym, but would also, in many cases, make up like a fake persona for themselves because they could. One, it's very liberating to just make up a a fake person. But two, it was like, well, I don't want these people finding me and I don't want the people at my day job seeing the filthy, filthy jokes that I'm writing (laughs) and and, and think that that this joke is about them or that this is... Yes. So the idea of separating myself from the work was like a key to being able to write early on because it, it didn't have the consequences of, you know, like my family didn't know I was writing this. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had a huge following before a lot of my friends and in, any of my coworkers knew. Like I was oh, wow. famous on some corners of the internet before the people yeah. in my real life knew because it's like, well, this isn't about them. This is something I'm doing it anonymously on purpose. So that's the ultimate irony of me now in my late 40s, now doing this full-time as a career in an industry where it is entirely tied to your face, your voice. Like if you're mm-hmm. not on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you cannot sell books. I don't care what your what type of book you're selling. Yeah. I'm a novelist. You know, I, I write very gory and somewhat ridiculous sci-fi horror. But these days, again, unless you're already extremely famous, If you're Mm -hmm. like 99% of the authors where you're out there hustling to get people to hear about your book, it is you putting your face, your home, your family, your pets, your preferences, your meals. The audience wants your whole, your whole being. I'm not used to that. I didn't, I was not raised in an environment where a million people needed to see what you had for lunch. Mm -hmm. So I, again, am blessed by the fact that I was in my 30s before social media came along because at least I was already a fully formed person. And mm-hmm. I, I'm i not fooled by a bunch of people on the internet, internet telling me I'm wonderful because it's like, okay, I can turn off this device, walk outside, and none of my neighbors care who I am or what I'm doing. Yeah. It's like, ah, tech guy, he's got the bright Christmas lights on his house. Who is that jerk? <laughs> like, they don't care. They don't care about any books right. I've written. And, you know, I, I can yeah. walk down the block and go to the grocery store. Nobody there cares who I am. So I, I'm able to stay grounded. Whereas I think if I had come yeah. up and immediately had, like, social media fame as a teen, I would not be a normal person today. I would be the, yeah. I would not be well-adjusted whatsoever. Yeah. It's a whole conversation about how when it is embedded into your formative identity, how you're starting to think of yourself at 12, 14, 16, even 20, it's got to be fundamentally different than for it to come a little bit later on because you know, you would already have your neighbor on social media with you. They already would have known you in that way. You know, it's like kids, it's like, okay, we switched schools and we moved to escape a bad situation. But guess what? These people are still with me online. So I didn't really escape at all. And I think it's so fascinating and and somewhat concerning to me how different those things are. But I'm thinking in your case, you must have had quite the moments sometimes when people sort of did discover, oh, my neighbor does do this, or even my family member has been writing online and so many people love him and I had no idea you know did you have any strange situations where you did kind of have to come out or or you were discovered by people who hadn't known you 
online, but knew you in real life because your fan base is incredibly passionate. They are very, very rabid. <laughs> and so I'm imagining that for some of your loved ones or even just your real life, whatever that means, your, your in-person life acquaintances to discover that was kind of strange for them. Right. And then once in the mid 2000s, once it started to become a source of income, at that point, you either have to admit what you're doing or else they think that you're just, you know, selling drugs on the side or something. Because <laughs> right. um, like, why, why does he suddenly have all this money? He's working. He's doing data entry. And it's like, yeah. so there were a lot of people who the first they heard of me writing fiction was when I sold the film rights okay. to the very first novel I ever I ever wrote because it's like, okay, well, this may be in movie theater soon. So I guess I should let people know. And then in 2007, when I got the job full-time writing for Cracked, like that was the end of, like I used a pseudonym as like branding, but my real name was now in my profile and on my socials and on my, because at that point I'm a professional I'm now guesting on shows. I'm doing it as myself. The you know right. the pseudonym was always just so my coworkers wouldn't complain about some inappropriate joke I had made. And for those again unfamiliar right. with my work, there's adult language. Everything else, if that's something mm-hmm. you, you you don't enjoy, please know that in advance. But it's it is a form that is in my mind a treasured and ancient form of communication where you use extremely crude humor to disarm people to talk about something you find very interesting that you're not yeah. talking down to them because you're saying, look, I'm from, I'm from small rural town. We told filthy jokes to each other all day long. This is how we talk, but I'm not an academic. I'm just one of you. Here's something I noticed. And and that's what people found compelling because that's, that's what my books are too. The, the, the plots are ludicrous and gory and in many ways just very very ridiculous but they're wrapped around an idea that yes is hopefully and very interesting to you if you sit down and think about it yes you know and that's why i think this is so sort of humorous this idea that part of what took me to your work back in 2014 for the first time was an essay that you wrote for cracked that really had a incredibly profound point of view in terms of the meaning of the holidays and i think to have you on today and we'll talk about this knowing some of your other work that gets so much attention in terms of sci-fi, in terms of horror, and then to think, well, wow, the piece that you wrote that really resonated with me was something that in a way people probably wouldn't expect. It was about the meaning of the holidays. And so for listeners who don't know, it's called We've Survived Another Year, Make It Count. You can still read it on Cracked. And that's part of the reason that I invited you today. And I just think it's kind of glorious that in a way, your books do the same thing. There's a bigger idea. There's a deeper idea. There's a more profound, meaningful idea. And yet your writing is so accessible and it's irreverent and it's compelling. And I think the same was true with that first piece in Cracked. So I don't know what copyright laws say in terms of if I can read a couple of sentences from it to give people the gist. I don't know. Is that going to get you in trouble? How does that how does that work? I think you could literally read the entire thing and nobody would notice or, or care. It's this. Is that a commentary cannot, on my listeners of my podcast? Of I my, cannot my fathom numbers. that anybody, it, it, I have a lot of friends still at Cracked. I can't fathom that anybody out there is patrolling. Like if nothing else, you're just bringing people to the site. Excellent. So with that in mind, I will read just a a little bit of it. So it basically begins with this idea of the winter solstice and how a lot of, for instance, Christian people might say, hey, we've lost the meaning 
of the holidays. But of course, a lot of other people would say, wait a second, the winter solstice was a thing long before the concept of Christianity came into play. So to begin, this is just an excerpt. We're so detached from that idea today, when the cold means nothing more than mild annoyance and sometimes slippery roads, that it's hard to grasp how recent this was and that this was the way of things for virtually all of human history. Every year, you headed into winter with just enough stored food and fuel to get by. The old and the sick knew they might not make it through, and an especially harsh winter could mean that no one would feel the sun's warmth ever again. Every year, you watched all of the plants turn brown and shrivel into husks, followed by an unrelenting darkness and cold that threatened to swallow you and everything you love. Every year, you see, winter arrived with a short day followed by the longest night of the year, aka the winter solstice. And since before recorded history, humans have been celebrating that day with a feast or a festival or outright debauchery. On that longest night before the frozen mini apocalypse, in all times and places, you would find light and song and dancing and food. Wait, you might say, so your inspirational true meaning of Christmas is that we should remember how our filthy ancestors used to freeze to death on a regular basis? No, Christmas isn't magical because of what it was or where it came from. It's magical because that's what it still is. Soon, many of you will be sitting in a room with laughing kids who won't be kids much longer and proud grandparents who won't be around much longer, or friends who for one reason or another won't be in your life. It probably won't occur to you that all of it is as tenuous as a snowflake on a dog's nose. It won't occur to you that there will never be another Christmas exactly like this one, that time will move on and people will change, and that someday your most treasured memories will be things that at the time you experienced with nothing more than detached, mild annoyance. So I'm thinking about when this first came across my newsfeed, that's probably how I first saw it back in 2014. And I had three very young children and everything was busy and so many holiday magic expectations to make. And it had such an effect on me because it really emphasized that there is something almost primordial about all of this, that there is something about the darkness starting to fall and our need for light and warmth and human connection. And most of all, our need to, to not take anything for granted and to find some meaning in this. So can I ask what made you first think in this way and, and what made you decide to write about it? It's interesting because you, you mentioned the year 2014. That's actually an important year, but I bet no one listening knows why. If you Google the phrase 2014 worst year ever, it was a huge meme toward the end of the year. It's like, thank God 2014 is over. This was clearly mm -hmm. the worst year. And I had to go back and search news to even, because I was listening to a podcast, an old podcast episode where they would had done like a Christmas 2014 episode. And it was full of this meme of, well, finally the year from hell was at an end. And they never explained why it was the year from hell because they didn't have to. In 2014, mm. everybody knew it was just a running joke on the internet. Isn't that wild? This is as bad as it can get. <laughs> Little did we know. Now, if you go back, you could say, well, yeah, that was the first big prominent police shooting that started the Black Lives Matter movement. That was in 2014 mm -hmm. in Ferguson, the mm -hmm. Michael Brown shooting. That you had Ebola, which we thought was going to be a huge deal, turned out to basically be nothing, at least in the United States. 
but a lot of stuff that seems like it's been greatly overshadowed yeah. by, by many worse years of time. So if you're asking why I was in such a maudlin mood at that time and, and wanted to write about trying to recapture why we should be happy, what, what reason do we have to be happy when there's this, this, and this going on in the world? And it's trying to say that in the past, the people who celebrated whatever they called their winter feast they mm -hmm. didn't celebrate it because, wow, another best year ever. It was for right. the opposite reason. It was because yeah. traditionally, you know, the older people, a lot of them are not going to make it through the winter. This is like mm -hmm. the one time we, this is maybe, maybe the last time we can sit down with them and use some of our precious remaining resources and, and cattle or whatever and have a feast and give gifts and decorate things. And that that is a, I believe, almost a primal need. So mm -hmm. a, if I start talking for the rest of this podcast about the mental health benefits, it should be clear, I am not a mental health professional. I have no training in that field. When I refer to things like depression, I am referring to how we speak of those in conversational terms, not as a clinical mm -hmm. diagnosis. So, Of course. For me, you can read in that. Here's a spoiler for something a lot of people may not know. Any self-help author, their first audience is themselves. Mm, if that's some, good for me to know. <laughs> yeah. If you see somebody who's written a book about how to organize your life, that's somebody who has struggled their whole life with organization. So they've written it as like they're lecturing themselves and then they now have it to share with the world. Mm -hmm. um, but if you ever find out that somebody who lectures people about organization, that their own home is a mess, it's not hypocrisy. It's because they, they're obsessed with that idea because they see that in themselves. And mm -hmm. so for me, you can do the math. I don't have children. So mm -hmm. I'm at an age where Christmas, most people, Christmas is special when you're a kid. But then at some point in adulthood, you have your own children and it's special because of them. You're trying to create special Christmas moments for them and memories for them. Well, if you're in your 30s and you don't have children, there's a point where Christmas becomes just a giant pain in the It's mm -hmm. the stores are crowded. The weather is miserable. Traffic is crazy. People are mad all the time. People are so stressed at Christmas. I see road rage incidents at, yes. at Christmas because mm -hmm. they're so stressed because it's like it's now just this economic deadline. And if you have mm -hmm. people to buy for... And if you're buying for other adults, it's not as special as when you're buying for kids because it's like this perfunctory thing and you don't know their tastes. And you got the office Christmas party. You've got all the stuff that's just the most lifeless. And you can get to where you hate this time of year. Mm -hmm. And this year, this essay was me realizing what I was losing if I got to where I dreaded Christmas mm -hmm. and didn't try to create something else for myself to look forward to. Yeah. And so... I have to ask, did it feel like it helped? Did it feel like it was able to resonate with you in the way that it certainly resonated with readers like me? I don't know. I mm -hmm. honestly don't. Because the way my rationale has always been, if I can make somebody else happy, <laughs> then, mm -hmm. then I, I, I've, done, I've done my job. It's just I have had a number of things that have happened in my life that for whatever reason occurred in December. I, I, I lost mm. a, a family member recently. It's, it's if that. you ask medical professionals, they will tell you that December is like the dying season. I guess a combination mm -hmm. of 
flu season and a lot of other things like the elderly. That's mm-hmm. the most common month for them to pass away, supposedly. Somebody can fact check that. And then it it cracked that sh- that whole thing kind of fell apart in 2017 when they laid everybody off. That happened in December, I think in the middle of the month. So I've had a lot of things where December is the anniversary of a series of bad things happening. And Mm -hmm. it has been difficult for me to do what I want to do, which is try to create new traditions for myself where it's like, okay, you don't have to do what this would be my message to anybody out there. You don't have to do what the world says. You know, it can be your holiday. But I'm someone who, as a workaholic, and I've always got a lot of projects going on. For example, this year, I have a manuscript that's due basically before Christmas. I have edits that have to be in. Uh, So I would be, I I realize that a good self-help author would say, Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The the Jason Pargent Christmas enjoyment method works 100% (laughs) of the time. If you follow these five steps in my book, How to Enjoy Christmas, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my seminar for ninety nine, you can buy now, you can get it. You know, there's a discount through the end of the year, but yes, this is a guaranteed Christmas enjoyment. I can't say that it, this, right. if you read this essay if, or if you listen to this podcast and it makes you feel warmer about it, I believe the point is extremely valid that for your own mental wellness, you need to mark occasions and you need to celebrate occasions. Like I would guess that Thanksgiving, approximately 0% of the population in the United States actually takes the time of the day to give thanks for what they have, which it is my understanding that taking time and like actually counting down the things like having gratitude for the good things in your life is one of the most surefire wellness, mental wellness tips that exists. Yeah. Well, you're psychic because we're recording this just a few days before my episode on what we get wrong about gratitude is going to come out. So those listening, you've already had that out, but it's absolutely true. And I think that's a whole, there's a whole issue there because we tend to give thanks or think of gratitude in kind of a dysfunctional way. So it doesn't help us, or we think of it as a chore. We don't bother to do it because it feels so rote because it feels like it's not that meaningful, because it feels like it's not really connected to a deeper understanding of people in our lives. You know, it's more, okay, say thank you for this or do a gratitude meditation. Oh, I don't want to because I'm annoyed at something right now. And 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 there's so much there, but I think you're absolutely right in terms of marking occasions that there's been this element of drifting away from that because typically when we're talking about holidays, for instance, it's a very stressful time because of the expectation. So it's that irony you talk about with people raging against each other on the roads. Oh my goodness, I've got to go find my joy by buying these gifts for people and you're in my way. And so now I'm honking at you. And I think this paradox exists because the holidays have gotten so filled with overly commercialized expectations. And like you said, it's a matter of being able to find your own traditions. It's a matter of being able to find meaning in the way that's right for you. I just did an episode of NPR's Life Kit about this, that traditions can be built anew. Traditions don't have to be formal. They don't have to check every box of whatever the cultural expectation is about that particular holiday. The idea is connection. The idea is meaning. The idea is gratitude. And honestly, when you tell me that your own essay doesn't automatically make every holiday season for you feel magical and not without pain, I say that actually makes it more meaningful. The fact that it is a struggle, 
the fact that joy and pain can certainly coexist. And I think for the holidays, that's what a lot of people's distress is tied to as well. It's not just, oh, there's so much traffic and this is annoying, but it's also, I really miss this person or I'm really mourning this person or I really don't feel like doing this holiday when my dad's not there or going to this party when my friend's no longer with us or whatever it might be. It's really painful for a lot of people. So honestly, I think the struggle being right in there that that this isn't like, oh, you will have Christmas magic forevermore if you just listen to these five tips. I think that actually makes it more real because a lot of people are really struggling with the fact that there's gonna be pain and we can also find a way to let joy in and not have either cancel each other out. The joy doesn't have to cancel the pain. The pain doesn't have to cancel the joy because honestly, both of them are very meaningful emotions to have. And the thing is, uh, so much advice on subjects like this sounds just like a like a bumper sticker or like one mm-hmm. of those, you know, live, laugh, love, like those things you put in your kitchen. This is like a three word slogan that there's so much of that stuff in the world that it doesn't. Nobody actually stops and looks at it. It's like, you know what? I should live, laugh and love in this room. <laughs> I'm going to do that right now. Like, it's just yes. a decoration. It, it's and I feel like if I tell somebody if I tell a kid, I tell a teenager, like, hey, you need to treasure the final years of your childhood because you're going to miss this when it's gone. What teenager in history has ever actually heeded those words? Right. And I right. don't know I don't know how to tell people that no matter how many times grownups told you throughout your life that people don't live forever and the things don't last forever, you know, that this stuff is everything is temporary. It does not hit you until it's gone. I'm telling you, it doesn't hit you until it's Mm -hmm. gone. And when you're a kid, for example, and I realize I'm being very like normative and talking about Christmas as if everybody in the world has experienced the same Christian white middle-class Christmas. I'm saying Mm -hmm. the way the culture thinks of Christmas and the way a lot of people think of Christmas where every year we go to whatever, we go to grandma's house on Christmas Eve, on Christmas Day, uh, mom bakes cookies every Christmas and we smell the cookies in the, in the oven and she makes, you know, we, we ice the cookies, whatever your, your family's unique thing is, you know, we decorate the tree on Christmas Eve or whatever. They always did that on TV. I don't, we always decorated ours like, like three months in advance, but it, whatever. Right. Procrastinators. Yeah. On television shows for sure. It's like, you just, just turn around and take it down again the next day. That's so much effort. Anyway, <laughs> I'm getting off the point. Whatever those traditions are as a kid, you secretly think they're going to last forever. Mm-hmm. This is what Christmas is. You wake up in the morning, you smell the cookies baking, you open your gifts. And one day, one day, whether in your teenage years, or maybe you move away to college, or maybe you lose a parent, one day you're going to wake up on Christmas and you're not going to be doing that thing. Mm-hmm. I talk about loss in this column, like that, you, that you've lost things that you had the previous Christmas and that you'll feel like you didn't take the time to treasure them. That's what I'm talking about. It's not just people dying, but that will be a part of it mm-hmm. as you get older, that we don't yeah. go to grandma's house anymore on Christmas Eve because she's not around anymore. You know, so now we do it at somebody else's house, but it's not the same or. Yeah. And all of those things that you think of, well, this is what we do every year. We, we, we get up, we have the cookies, we open the presents, we do that, 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 that someday you're going to wake up and that's not going to be what you do. 
And then what you do instead, someday you're going to wake up and you're not even going to do that. And then one year you may not have Christmas at all because a bunch of stuff got in the way or, you know, your parents are gone or maybe you had to move to uh, India and for a job and, and you couldn't fly back. And only then will you realize what it meant to you. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard that especially since 2014, I think part of why people recognize 2014 as being like the worst year ever. I feel like that was the beginning of everything being so politicized on social media because that was yeah. right at the cusp of that was Gamergate, the rise of Trump. Like that was the very, very, very beginnings mm-hmm. of all that when he started become. And so now every year around the holidays, you'll see lots of articles with stuff like, well, it's like how to deal with your horrible parents. Mm-hmm. With your QAnon loving mother, or with your Trump supporting uncle, or with your your racist grandpa, and it's like how to avoid how how to tolerate your family at Christmas time, and the way that kind of thing has completely severed people from enjoying the presence of their family. The loss there is incalculable, mm-hmm. because you are. There are some there are some members of, of families that you only see at Christmas time, or a lot of people, especially if you've moved away from home. Like Christmas is the only time you can afford to make that trip, right? Knowing that you spent their final years dreading being around them, or like staring at your phone through the meal until you could finally get away from them, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way it was for the longest time. Because again, part of this holiday was recognizing. This may be the last one the grandpa is around for. Well, that's still true. That a lot of people, there are people listening to this statistically, who when they see their grandparents or whatever in you know on Christmas, that will be the last time they ever talk to them forever. Yeah. And they won't know it because you never know it. Yeah. And I've certainly written and done a lot of segments on boundary setting and how to keep yourself sane and and how in some families there is estrangement that makes sense and, you know, how we don't have to put up with, for instance, toxic behavior or be seen as co-signing on, you know, a racist grandfather's rants or anything like that. But I think what you're speaking to is something deeper than that, which is there is nuance and there's a way to not throw everything away. And there's a way to still have meaning in relationships and honor those relationships, even when they're imperfect. And even when the ritual feels hokey or inconvenient, because, you know, one thing that strikes me as we're talking is that for a lot of these last times, as you said, we don't we don't know at the time that it's the last. You know, I think that's true with a lot of different types of losses, not just, oh my goodness, I had no idea this dear friend would die before I saw them again, but also the other types of subtle losses of childhood and kids growing up or friendships fading. You don't realize, you know, I know this is talked about in parenting sometimes, but not enough. Like nobody ever says, well, this is the last time that I actually picked up my child. Lord knows I'm not picking up my 17 year old son anymore. There was a point at which he was just too heavy. But I don't know. I couldn't tell you, hey, this is the last time I held my kid as we walked through a grocery store or something. I don't know when that was. And I think this is very similar what we're talking about. People assume things are just always be, and you might not necessarily know until way after the fact with longing and regret. This was the last time we spent New Year's together as a family, or this was the last Thanksgiving that both sides of this family actually broke bread together and ate. And I think that knowledge that we don't know, that knowledge of embracing the fact that life is uncertain is such a key theme here. 
because that empowers us to actually say, you know, let me try my best to get out of this something that I won't regret later, something that does tie me to a connection of meaning. Because I hear so many regrets from folks, you know, and, and I think just thinking of all of this, and it's so interesting, the whole 2014 being the worst year ever at the time, as people perceive, because I feel like now at the end of each year, the joke has become for the past seven, eight years, obviously, like, uh oh, well, thank goodness that's over because it truly has gotten worse in a lot of people's minds year to year, of course, probably peaking somewhat in 2020. But what strikes me is that you wrote this piece, the idea of Ebola being sort of a threat, but that didn't come to be as disruptive and certainly didn't come to kill nearly as many people by any stretch of the imagination as what we've dealt with the past couple of years in terms of COVID. And so rereading your piece this year, it strikes me, oh my goodness, this is even more relevant than ever because so many people really have lost people that they would not have necessarily expected or that older folks are more vulnerable than ever before. And so to me, this is how we should all be thinking even more so than ever in terms of how do I want to mark this time in a way that values my relationships and doesn't take anything for granted? Because if the past few years have taught us anything, it's that life as we know it, even if we're not even just talking about the loss of someone we love, but life as we know it in terms of you know the ability to just go to the movies and not think about it and just get together with our friends and not worry about our health. That can, that can change in an instant. And knowing the way internet discourse works, <laughs> saying <laughs> what I said about, you know, not taking your family for granted, immediately, immediately somebody will in a comment say, oh, so you're saying the uncle that abused me for 10 years, yes. I should befriend him? No, mm -hmm. you don't have to go to the most extreme possible horrific example. Mm -hmm. Lots of us as teenagers disconnected from the elders just because we found them annoying to talk to or to spend time with yes. or because we i don't know we don't have anything in common they don't watch the same shows we do they don't you know so it's like hard to know what to talk about the vast majority of people that kind of feel like they're having to grit their teeth and tolerate their weird family it's not because of some actual well, well my uncle's a literal neo-nazi you want to befriend him it's usually not right. that. it's that right. People fall into rabbit holes and they get radicalized into things or they believe conspiracy theories. There are people that will go to Christmas and they're going to hear their family start arguing about vaccines or mm -hmm. something and they're going to want to just leave the room. But here again, I feel like in a perfect world, you would be able to listen to that ranting and raving old person and say there is almost a 100% chance they've lost somebody in the last two years. Mm -hmm. A friend, a parent, a brother. Statistically, over a million people are dead in the United States from this disease over the last couple of years. That got counted as this. There were many other deaths that also were exacerbated by the lockdowns, everything else, deaths of despair, the overdose, car accidents went up for some inexplicable mm -hmm. reason. Everybody, especially everybody above a certain age, knows somebody who died and probably died bad died and probably yeah. may very well died in a situation where they were not allowed to go in and visit them because the protocols didn't didn't allow it. My mother went into a nursing home right before the COVID lockdowns and the nursing homes, if you didn't have family there, they had to be locked down very, very tight because if COVID got yeah. loose in a nursing home, that would spread like wildfire and they would not, a lot of people would not survive mm -hmm. it. So in between visits, when I was able to talk to her face to face, 
she went from someone I could talk to mostly to someone who did not recognize me. Mm. Yeah. My story is among the less horrible stories of all the people you're running into. Mm -hmm. That person doing the road rage thing or honking at you in traffic because they're frantically trying to get their Christmas shopping done. They've got a mother-in-law who has passed or a Mm father-in-law or an uncle or a grandpa. They've lost somebody or they have had an ordeal of some kind. I promise you nobody got out of this without some level of trauma. I'm using trauma in the conversational sense, not as a Mm -hmm. clinical diagnosis. They've not gotten out of this without something that they loved in their life being dead forever. For example, Mm -hmm. maybe they were raising teenagers and had to watch their kid miss out on, they didn't have a prom, they didn't have a homecoming, they didn't have Mm -hmm. because they worked because school was closed for a year and a half and they had to do it remotely. So all of these keystone moments in your formative years, they had to watch their kid not have those. Or they've, they've lost their job, or they've seen their entire industry collapse, on and yeah. on and on. You are surrounded by people who have been through the ringer, and some of their ways of dealing with it are very maladaptive and obnoxious and hateful mm-hmm. and harmful. There is a degree of charity you can have for people mm-hmm. where if this person is being this big of a jerk, if they're in target and they're throwing in a fit yelling at a manager where you can stop and say, maybe, maybe, maybe they're not mm-hmm. just an entitled monster. Maybe this is someone who has just been pushed to their limit over yeah. the last two years. And they finally popped. They finally lost it. Yeah. That. This is supposed to be a time of year when we talk about generosity and charity, things like that, where we think entirely about money and giving stuff to the poor, when the most important form of charity that exists, in my opinion, is that, is in not Mm -hmm. assuming the absolute worst about people. That the old person who tunes into whatever weird YouTuber, and they've gotten into flat earth, or they've gotten into whatever thing, and they've fallen Mm -hmm. down a conspiracy rabbit hole, those people are lonely. And they found a community of like-minded yep. people. That's usually all it is. And they found a people that they're like, I've joined a, an army of, and they've got my back and we're all united. And the cause may be the dumbest thing you've ever heard before. But yeah, if you cannot look at them and see the lonely old person at the center of that, whose kids have moved away, whose grandkids don't talk to them, and their spouse has passed, and it's like, this is all they've got in their life. You've yeah. got to be able to feel some generosity of spirit to those people Not to the very, very worst, not at the expense of your own safety, but for your own good, it will do you a world of good to look at people and say, they're all fighting a hard battle that I know nothing about. Uh, I love that. And you know, the research actually really backs that up, that when we can have a moment of compassion, it makes us less fearful. It makes us less reactive. Wow, this person cutting me off in traffic what a monster, let me road rage. But instead, if we can pause and say, I wonder if they're going to the hospital, they're speeding to the hospital because they just got a terrible call. It actually really benefits our mental health in the moment. And of course, it benefits the universe, right? I mean, I think this extra empathy, extra compassion, extra willingness to suspend the reactionary judgment is so needed in our society. But of course, reactionary judgment is reinforced all the time because it's quick 
because it's interesting, you know, and that's how I think part of the problem with polarization that's happening is that we're more stimulated by the reactionary judgment that somebody posted. Ooh, look at this hot take. This is something interesting that gets my dopamine going. Whereas having a nuanced and insightful conversation about, hey, let's talk about the fact that the reason that a lot of conspiracy theories are taking hold is because they provide a sense of community for folks who are incredibly lonely. Eh, that takes more words, right? That's That doesn't get our dopamine going as much because that's not something that we can then go, yeah, you know? And so I think you're making such profound points here. And I just love the fact that I've gotten to have this conversation with a horror sci-fi author. Let me just read some of the titles of your books, you know, Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits, Zoe Punches the Future in the blank, that this is one of the most profound conversations about the meaning of holidays that I've had. And I'm just so grateful for it. So in the spirit of showing gratitude, I want to show my gratitude to you because this has been incredibly helpful, not only for me to think through, but also probably for so many of our listeners when they get to hear it. I hope so. This is how, this is my coping mechanism is I try to put the thoughts together that helped me through it and see if that helps somebody else. And maybe it does. The books that I write are intended to be extremely entertaining. Even if you do not want to give a second thought to them, it's like if it made you happy for like 12 straight hours or however long it took you to read through the book, you've done a service to the world. Um, but they all are breaking down some some bigger idea in the most ridiculous way I could I could make it. Uh, because that's my whole life I've been kind of uh, depressed even as a kid and then also was kind of the class clown. And it was clear from very early on that that was how I made up for being sad. It was mm -hmm. like, well, if I can make if I can make these people laugh or distract them from their problems for a moment, then that's probably all I have to offer to the world because I don't have any other skills. I, I don't, I, I would not have, I, I would not have been able to become a doctor. I, I don't, I, I, I'm not able to understand medical terminology. So. So the data entry world is not mourning uh, the loss of Jason Pargin from the late 2005s, 2006s. No, not at all. And in fact, I, I don't know that I was great at any of my previous jobs. But again, that's why I, I wouldn't. But again, I'm grateful for that, too. Because if I had been successful right out of high school, I would have thought, oh, okay, this is what the world is. You graduate from high school, you instantly become famous, you make a bunch of money. I don't know why everybody else isn't doing this. They must be lazy. Like, no, yeah. I had to go out in the world and fail for, you know, I get my first paying writing job is at age 32, which I consider wonderful because I think of 32 as being very, very young. But I yeah. can go on TikTok right now and see kids who are 19, 20, 22, 23, right. depressed because they've not become influencers yet, or they've not. Right. It's like, look, when I was 19, they had not invented the internet yet. The, the <laughs> thing that would make my career didn't exist. And yeah, yeah I this is, is a corny that I sit around sometimes and I'm thankful that the internet exists. It's like, oh, you're, so you're thankful to AT&T for charging billions of dollars to run these connections. You're thankful to Verizon for keeping your smartphone working mm -hmm. and all of these addictive amps. Like kind of, I don't know. It's how, it's how you're hearing yeah. my voice right now. I guess that would be, if I were to make one final point, you being miserable and cynical about things doesn't help the world at all. <laughs> if you, right. 
if you want to advocate against the addictive nature of smartphones or whatever you think the big problem with the world is, exploitative economic conditions, things like that, then go out and advocate for it. But if you yourself, if you want to take a moment to express gratitude for what you have, for the privileges you have mm -hmm. in your life and that you were born in the richest time and the richest civilization in the history of the species, that it's like, well, yeah, how can I be happy when all of these people are suffering? You being unhappy and ruining your own physical health or filling yourself with so much anxiety that you can't leave the house or get a job mm -hmm. or whatever, that's not helping a starving child in sub-Saharan Africa. That's not helping right. anybody in India get clean running water or sanitation. It's not doing anything for anybody. So yeah. among good people, especially among like socially conscious types, there's almost this superstition of me being miserable somehow helps the world. Like I can't, I can't just sit down and say, oh, thank goodness that like I'm so happy that I have a warm house. It's like, oh, so I'm supposed to be thankful for fossil fuel corporations who provided the natural mm -hmm. gas and they probably overcharged me for it. It's like you should have room in your mind to appreciate that you live a very comfortable life compared to any previous generation and that you have access probably in your phone you have a little device that gives you access to all of the human knowledge in history that's mm -hmm. not a minor thing it's okay to appreciate what you have and it doesn't mean giving up on improving the world or helping yes. people or helping the less fortunate or feeling sympathy or empathy either one that's actually the point is that i am very lucky I didn't earn this. Being born in this era, I didn't earn that. I could have been born during the smallpox, you know, or during the Black Plague or whatever in medieval Europe. I wasn't. I was born now with these problems instead of those, and I would rather have these. You would not switch if you had a chance. Anybody who thinks they would prefer to live in 1922 than 2022 doesn't know what 1922 was like. Oh, but those flapper dresses were so cool. <laughs> Life was so much simpler back then. <laughs> um, but what you're speaking to, I think, so much is that there's always a need for nuance, right? Gratitude and fighting injustice very much go together, you know, and that's why nuance is so important, that these things can coexist, that we can be angry about the state of the world and also recognize so much privilege within it just to be able to be in this world and all of the wonderful things. And I think it's so hard sometimes to be able to get across that nuance because that's not the way our society's been working so much the past few years. Yeah. And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that our understanding of mental health and mental illness is in its infancy. And I think among the general public, the average person, our understanding of mental health and mental illness is in the dark ages still. There are theories that sound grotesque today that were taken completely for granted as true as recently as when I was born. I was born in 1975. Yeah. So like the number of people who believed homosexuality was an actual illness in 1975 was probably the majority. Well, it was only three years before that, that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders stopped including it. I mean, even the medical field, yeah. Yeah, and then from there for it to percolate into society, academia, and everywhere else that if this is not an illness, like that took a long time and it is very, very recent. So yeah, our understanding of 
what social media does to us, what being inundated with a message that among people who are way too online, which is a lot of my fans, that every waking moment of every waking day needs to be a war you're fighting. And the way you fight this war is by like staring at your phone extra hard and retweeting the right posts yeah. and boosting the right yeah. signals. And it's like, well, I'm helping. I'm fighting an information war. It's like, I think the effects that has on your mental health versus the good it actually does in the world. I, I think in your later years, you may look back on a lot of this as wasted time. Cause it's like, I could have been out mm -hmm. volunteering at a soup kitchen. And I could have helped more people tangibly in that day than what I did spending, you know, hours and hours and hours on Twitter, which looking back, all I did was I made a, a giant corporation, a whole bunch of money, you know, by giving them content for free. Right. So I don't want to make any proclamation like smartphones are ruining your brain. I don't have the science to back that up because guess what? We have no idea what 30 years of smartphone use does to a brain because they've not existed that long. We have no idea what using right. TikTok in youth and through your formative years, what that does to development because we've never done it before. This generation of kids are part of an experiment that nobody agreed to. <laughs> With no control group, yep. with no parameters, we just thrust them into it. Said, "Hey, now you are being judged. You're on camera. You're on camera through your whole your whole childhood and formative years and adolescence. Show us, show us what happens when we do that to you." It is my belief that in the future we will look back on this as the way we look back on like when doctors used to be in smoking ads. It's like menthols are the best for your lungs, and it seems so. Yep. I think. We will look back and say that that we threw our children into this to where this occupies so much of your brain space and we will have regrets <laughs> um, yes. because I don't I don't think it's good for you. And I think that the combination of this technology with how little we still understand about how mental health works is a very dangerous combination. So stuff like what we're talking about today we're saying that there are ancient methods that people used to use to renew themselves that as we kind of throw off religion and like church attendance goes down and the belief in religion goes down, I would urge people that there are elements of that that even if you strip out all of the supernatural that people used to do for their mental health, even though the term mental health didn't exist, they would, they would say mm -hmm. it renews the spirit or something like that that this is not superstition, that the superstition about we need to offer these sacrifices to this statue, yeah, that's a superstition, but this ceremony helps sustain you through the dark times is not superstition. That's that's deeply human. And the, the church yeah. thing of that a bunch of us will gather in person and talk about morality and our lives and what's troubling us in our lives and what is tempting us because we do like temptation mm -hmm. you don't have to believe in god to believe that temptation is a thing if you if you're on a diet you know what temptation is like that exists outside of right. religious context like the idea of sitting in a room in person with a bunch of people and talking about yeah i mm -hmm. i've got this i get it i, I got this rage disorder i explode into anger at the smallest things and then somebody else says yeah, i've got that too yeah 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 and that you can have somebody leading you through that discussion. Like, that is extremely helpful, even if you don't call it a church. And when people stop going mm -hmm. to church and, and you say, well, I don't believe in all that stuff, that's fine. I, I, I get it. But 
I would ask you to stop and ask, what was that doing for people outside of the supernatural context? Right. The social connection part was huge and is still for people who still go. It's a real mental health benefit that it provides that community and those social interactions. Because today I can, again, go on TikTok and see people talking about how they have no friends and the number of friends has declined. And you will find an entire community yeah. of males being very angry that they can't find girlfriends. Hey, do you know where yes. boys used to find their first girlfriend? At church. They met her at church yes. or they met her at Sunday school. And yeah. they did church activities and they did church camp. That's where you met your friends. That's where, and I get it. If you're saying, well, I don't want to hang out with a bunch of church people. I know. I'm saying that that's what that used to be. It's where you met people. It's where business people made connections. It's where you met clients. Yeah. Like, yeah, I sold a car to this guy. How do I know him? We go to the same church. When yeah. you lose that, and if you replace it with something that doesn't serve the same function, for example, if you become an online mm -hmm. fandom for like a streamer or something, there's nothing wrong with that. It's harmless unless it has replaced something that used to be the mechanism by which the things that we still need which are in real life friends, romantic partners, mm -hmm. hobbies, fulfilling hobbies, something to think about that's not work, you know, something to think about that's not politics, that's not this, yeah. this, you know, where every conversation we have, it's a war over something that we're mad about this week. There's people right now still talking about like the war on Christmas. And, and they're not talking about mm -hmm. it in the terms that we're talking about. It. Well, people are not, they're, they're miserable. Right. They're talking about it, well, specifically should be this religion's holiday. A lot of the things that have replaced the old traditions don't serve the same function. And you should be able to call attention to that without doing the thing where it's like, no, we should go back. We should go back to the 50s and be nostalgic you know, and bring yes. back the homophobia and all that. It's like, yes. no, it's understanding what the secular purposes a lot of these things served. And I realize that even me saying this is sacrilegious yeah. to some people because it's like, no, if you don't believe in the spirit and the soul and God, then it's all meaningless. I disagree. That's where we differ. Yeah. Oh, Jason, I have to stop. I wish I didn't. I am so sorry. I have another meeting that I have to go to. Um, but this has been so great. I would love to have you back on sometime. I'm just so thankful for our conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much again. Thanks for having me on. Uh, the new book is called If This Book Exists, You're in the Wrong Universe. It has a lime green cover, but my older books, you can get it used to bookstores for, or libraries for much, much cheaper. But if you want to read the newest and most expensive one, that's what it's called. Excellent. It is a book for adults. It is very silly, but as you read it, you'll realize, oh, it's very silly, but there's something else going on, hopefully, if I've done my job. Wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much. Thank you for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast to give your take on upcoming topics and guests. And why not tell your chatty coworker where to find us? Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Danielle Merity, and my studio security is provided by Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care. <laughs>